Good morning, church, with uh, joy of Christmas in your hearts. Open your Bibles, Luke chapter 1. And you heard the first part of the story taught earlier during Advent time, so the test is coming, so just hold on to that. Uh, You know that this is a series that I've called The Songs of Christmas, and I opened up two weeks ago with you and told you what the number one Christmas song in America is today, and it is Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. That's what she sings. That's what America has come to love. But I noticed that, again, way down the list were some of the famous Christmas hymns. And so I had to go back to Billboard charts, and I had to say, what are the songs of Christmas that, you know, are best remembered and that we like to sing the most? What would be the rank order of those? And in my digging and my research, this is what I found. The top Christmas songs or hymns of all time, number one on the list, Joy to the World. I do love that song. It's a great one. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we just sang that, number two on the list, and Oh Holy Night, number three, The First Noel, number four, and on down the list. And so again, there are songs that we sing at Christmas that, again, we like to sing. It helps us remember that this is a special season of the year. And one of the things that I did last week is I told you that there is a spot in the Bible, Luke, he's different from all of the other gospel writers because he says, I want to put the spotlight on four characters in the scriptures, and I'm going to tell you something special that they do. They have Christmas songs or Christmas poems that they speak. And again, if you were just reading through the scriptures, you might pass right over that, and you might think that there was nothing special to that. But Luke is different in that way, and he records some special kind of literature or special songs or poems that are given to those characters. Let me remind you, I've got a little chart on the screen for us. These are the four characters he covers in Luke's chapter 1 and 2. And he covers Mary. We did that two weeks ago. And remember, she has a poem or a song that's called the Magnificat, and that's what we covered two weeks ago. Zechariah is today. And his poem is known as the Benedictus. We have the angels that are going to come and visit the shepherds. We're going to be covering that next week, Christmas Eve. And then there's one more guy, Simeon. He is one who blesses the Lord at the temple. And he's an old man who's longed to see Jesus, or longed to see the Savior. And finally, he can't believe he's holding the Savior in his hands. We are not going to get a chance to cover Simeon. So poor Simeon, he's left out of this round, but he's still in the scriptures and and you can certainly read him. Well, all of these uh, songs or all of these poems that are in the scriptures are very spontaneous. They're joyous. They're even predictive in some ways. And so again, we're going to be covering the story of Zechariah. Let me just give us a little warm up. Let me remind you what was read earlier today. Zechariah is a priest. And he's a dutiful priest, and he's been given this opportunity of a lifetime. It's kind of a lottery system that the priests at that time are chosen for the special opportunity to go into the temple and burn incense. And its chances are good. He doesn't normally get that opportunity. It's like his time has finally arrived. And so, man, he warms up for that. For a priest, it's like the Super Bowl that he gets to go into this holy place and light the, light the incense So he gets ready for that. He goes in at night, and to all surprises of surprises, an angel meets him. And the angel meets him and says, guess what, Zechariah? (laughs) Your wife is going to have a baby. And he's like, 
time out. Don't you know I'm old and my wife is well advanced in years? Is this some kind of a cruel joke? He doesn't say that, but that's the tone. And the angel says, no, not at all. This baby is coming. And as a matter of fact, you're, the, the baby's going to have this great future to him. And you're to give the baby the name John. Now, Zechariah is just stunned. And he can't believe his ears. And the angel says, because you've had this moment where you've doubted, because you, you haven't believed what God has told you, you're going to be silent. In other words, you're going to be mute, unable to speak until that baby is born. And so Zechariah flails out of the temple and you know, everybody can tell something's wrong right away. He can't speak. He's giving hand signs and hand gestures and they figure out he's gone mute while he's in the temple and it's only probably later as he can write something onto some sort of a tablet that he can explain what has happened in the temple and so that's the, the snapshot of where Zechariah is and that moment of doubt that crept in on him. The religious professional, the priest, the guy that should be getting it right, and he doesn't. And he fails in that big moment, his, his shining moment before God, and he fails. And so Zechariah has this long, long stretch of now thinking about just what's happened. Nine months thinking about what's happened. He probably can't work as a priest any longer because, you know, again, he can't speak, so he's probably out of that. And he's got nine months at home to think about that moment and his failure at that moment and to think about the words that he said. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He wishes he could take that back and say, wow, what a great thing. I believe, Lord, and this is gonna be fantastic. But he doesn't do that. I, this week, learned about a new slang term. I'd never heard it before. I looked it up and did a little research on it. And that slang term is flop era. Two words, one idea, flop era. And flop era refers to somebody who's having a period of time in their life when they are experiencing a failure. For instance, somebody might say, it's my flop area a flop era in refer to in reference to a decline that they've seen they they had a time in which they were really on all cylinders but now their life has somehow changed course and they bemoan their flop era in the sense of their job or their lack of job their dating life in this modern era who can figure that out they might be thinking about that of just a general downturn in their life Maybe some of you here today are saying, well, you know, I've experienced a bit of a flop era recently. I, I really feel like everything was roses maybe a couple years ago, and now, boy, everything has just turned sour, it's turned sideways, and I'm considering my life in some sort of a flop era. And I'm bringing this up to you because, well, Zechariah has a flop era. Zechariah has failed in his most supreme duty of believing God as a priest. I mean, there's nobody at a higher calling than this guy, and he fails at it, and so he is in this period of time in which I'm going to argue is a flop era because of his failure. What's going to transpire? How is God going to respond to Zechariah? How is Zechariah going to respond to God? That's the rest of the story, and I love the way that Luke wrote this. 
Because he wrote Luke chapter 1 and he puts Zechariah at the front end with John the Baptist being born to uh, his wife Elizabeth or on the way. Then he cuts away from the scene and goes to Mary and we cover Mary and we learn that Mary has an angel that comes to her and see she's the one that has the immaculate conception. And then he cuts the scene back again to John or Zechariah for John and the birth of John. And so that's what we're going to pick up today. We're going to hear the rest of the story with Zechariah. I'm picking up in verse 57 of chapter 1. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to the circumcision of the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying and now here's the poem here's the song ascribed to Zechariah blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that he, we, would, we should be saved from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us, excuse me, from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Lord, common words that have maybe been read millions of times, billions of times by your people, but we let them rest with us again today. And my hunch is, Lord, that many of us, all of us perhaps, can identify with Zechariah today. Uh, we've, we've all had moments of doubt or moments of failures of faith. And so his story is, well, it's relevant to us today. Would you teach us? Would you just teach us? Let us know today how you act, what kind of a God you are in the moments of some of our failures so teach us now, guide us now, Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 
Zechariah has this moment of faith failure or faith flopping. And what is God going to do? Well, God is the God who is the God of second chances. He is always willing to let people correct what was wrong or the moment that they had of indecision in the past. And so he's saying, I'm going to give you the opportunity to overcome this, to get it right this time. And so Zechariah, much to our surprise, is not banished from being a a priest ever again. He's not thrown out of his city. He's not thrown out of the temple. Far from it. He's given the opportunity to get it right. And that's what's going to happen when we have our failure of faith. God's going to come and do something with us that's going to give us the opportunity to rectify that. And so again, Zechariah is not out of business. He's in fact more in business now because God's going to come in his mercy and do something with him. Here's what I want you to see today. His faith is going to be, God's going to interact with his faith in some important ways. And first of all, he's going to test his faith. Then he's going to reward his faith. Then he's going to use his faith. So in that order, we're going to see what God does with Zechariah. First, he's going to test him. Then he's going to reward him. Then he's going to use him. Let's follow the scriptures and find out how God does that. First, God responded to Zechariah by giving him a second chance, and he tested his faith. He's going to see if he can get it right this time. And specifically, it's aimed at at naming his son. Now, the angel had told him that nine months earlier, you're to give him the name John. And that just seems like a slam dunk. Why wouldn't we do that? Automatically, the angel says, bam, we're going to do it. But there's one problem here. It is against the custom of the time. We are even told that the individual, in fact, I want to read that verse for you. It's verse 61, if you give that to me. It's the next verse or the next slide. They say, there is no one among all your relatives who has that name. So in other words, we can't believe you're going to name him John and not Zechariah Jr. I mean, you're an old guy. Who else is going to carry on your lineage? Your wife should have never even had a baby anyway. By the way, our minds are thinking back. Ooh, wow, this sounds like Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? This sounds like Noah's parents who, who are also barren and they have this very special child. So our minds are thinking right away, whoa, this has got to be somebody special if, if, he's got, uh, the, if this birth has come at a time when a, a woman shouldn't be able to have a baby like that. And so, again, it's a slam dunk that we think he should name him John because the angel said so, but everybody in the village is saying, no, don't do that. This is your chance, Zechariah, to extend your heritage and you're to give him the name Zechariah Jr., right? The little Zeki. No, no, no. Elizabeth gets it right from the beginning. Elizabeth says, and by the way, how would she know this? Only because Zechariah told her, when the angel met me, he said, name him John. And she says, man, we're doing that. I mean, I've seen what God does. We are doing that. His name is John. And they come back to Zechariah and they're like, I know you can't speak here, but you're still the head of the household. What do you say? What are you going to do? And the moment is pregnant. Is he going to do what society tells him to do? Or is he going to do what the angel said to do? And he doesn't miss a beat. John says, man, give me the scroll. His name is John. To the astonishment of everybody there, they are like, man, I can't believe the decision this guy is making. And he writes it on the scroll, give him the name John. And all of the group, it says, is filled with awe. It's the talk of the town And here's what I want you to hear. When your faith is tested after you had a failure, 
you're going to have the opportunity to choose sides. And it's going to be, you're going to choose something that God says to do or to believe or to act upon, or it's going to be something the world says, oh, no, this is the right way, and you're going to have a choice. Much like Zechariah, you've got to pass the test here by choosing what God says as the right path, the right way. And some are going to say, well, I mean, that decision might upset the family. That, that decision might upset the business climate. That decision might upset the school. That decision might, well, sound intolerant. But God is going to be coming to say, I'm testing you in this way, and I want you to get this right. Now, you just think with me for a minute. Testing my faith. That just, that, is that right? Does God do that? It's like, well, man, if you read the scriptures, God's testing people all over the place. This is one of the passages in the New Testament, James chapter 1. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the, here it is, testing of your faith produces endurance. And God is about testing all kinds of people. Perhaps the greatest example of this, Abraham Will you sacrifice your son Isaac, whom I've given you? Who is your heritage? How else are we going to fill the earth with your progeny, your seed, unless Isaac lives? But will you give him to me? And of course, he passes that test with flying colors. God all the time is coming to us and saying, I'm testing you. And testing is for a very valuable purpose. It's to discern what's there. It's to discern what's real, what has actually grown, what is actually existing on the inside of you. Let me give you an example, a little modern day one. Many of you know my wife is a math teacher. And kids are now, because I think of the COVID era, asking for a whole lot of accommodations. And so one of the things that happens is they'll have a test And the kids are remembering the time when they had all their classes at home, all their tests were taken at home. And so they say, Mrs. Boone, can we take our test home and take it there? Now, Mrs. Boone was not, you know, she was not a kid yesterday, all right? She's been around a little bit. And she knows that some of those students, not all, but some of those students want to go home and want to use their phones, their smartphones, in order to graph the, uh, the, the, the problem or to solve the polynomial using their, their calculator or their, their, their smartphone. And so she says, no, we are going to, Peter, we're going to take that test right here. And by the way, this is a good thing. It's a good thing because tests help us understand where we are. And if we'll take a test, it will help us discern how to study in order to actually improve. So this test is something really good. That's why we'll take it right here, right now, under even the time constraints of what you got, because it's going to help us to discern a lot about where we are. God's test of faith is the exact same for you. It's just helping us discern where we are. Are you in a space where you're really saying yes to God and yes, I believe you, yes, I want to move forward to you? Or are you hedging in some ways and that test of faith is something that God does actually for your betterment, for his glory, and he wants you to pass that test, as it were, in order to move on to the next next stage. Anytime God tests, there's something that happens when we pass the test, always, And here's what happens. If you pass that test, then faith is rewarded. 
And man, that's good news, right? I mean, we all love a reward. And so again, faith is going to be rewarded. How is it rewarded with Zechariah? The answer is found in verse, verse 61, if you want to give me that. Uh, number two, faith is going to be rewarded. And then right after that, immediately his mouth was, uh, yeah, there it is. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. So what was his reward well, in this case, it was that he spoke again. And so again, I doubt few of us are going to have that happen to us. Few of us are going to say our faith flopped, and so God said, you can't speak anymore. And so again, you're going to get your speech back. So it doesn't happen exactly like that. But there is going to be something in which God comes and says, I want to reward you. I want to give you something as a result of you honoring me and you following me. And I just need to be clear here. It's, it's not more goodies, all right? It's not more money. It's not more uh, things that you, great experiences that you want to have. So that's not what God is predominantly thinking about here. God is thinking about things that are true freedom. He's thinking about things that are true, uh, true wealth in his mind is what he wants to give to you. And many times that is going to come to us in terms of, of our, our freedom or our ability to do what he wants us to do. Here's what I want you to hear today. Uh, freedom is not the ability to do what I want to do. True freedom, biblical freedom, is to do what is the best. It's the freedom, my freedom, my ability to do what's best, to do what God wants me to do. That's the freedom God is wanting to give to us, is to honor him with our lives and to do the things that are best for him and for us. And that's what the, the freedom that he gave to Zechariah. That's the freedom that he wants to give to us. Let, let me remind you, there's one chapter in the Bible that has a lot of stories about individuals who've exemplified faith. It's Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. And there's a litany or there's a story of all these people from the past, predominantly the Old Testament again, that show or demonstrate faith. And I went and looked at that list again. I read through that list again. And here's what I want you to know. When those individuals were rewarded, not one of them got a reward of more money. Not one of them got the reward of tangible assets. That's not what was focused upon. All of them had the reward of character that was revealed, of closeness with God, of an inheritance that was in heaven. So there was a reward later that was going to be coming to them. And of them being, of God being pleased with them. That was their great reward was God said, I was pleased to call them my people. And so that's, again, the kind of reward that's coming to Zechariah right now is he has been, he's in the center of God's will now. He's in the center of being close to God, and that is a, a tremendous reward for him. I want to tell you the story today about a young man named Joey Prusak, and I have a picture here of Joey Prusak up for you. Joey Prusak, a young man that works at Dairy Queen, and he was doing his shift one day. It was an afternoon, and uh, he was filling, up, or filling the, the, snow co the cones with uh, soft-serve ice cream, and he was making blitzes and all those things, or blizzards, I guess that's what they're called, blizzards, blitzes, uh, whatever the name is. He was making those things for people. And there was a guy in line who you know, had his handicapped stick. He was obviously blind, and he had a $20 bill that popped out of his pocket. And Joey watched that happen. A woman standing behind him in line kneeled, knelt down, picked up the $20, and put it in her pocket. 
Joey stops the line for a moment and goes to the lady and says, I think you might have picked up that man's $20 bill. And she vehemently denied it, got rather nasty, got snippy back to him. And so, you know, rather than have this all out in front of everybody, Joey did something really cool. Joey reaches into his wallet, pulls out $20, and gives it to the man who joyfully took that $20 and said, thank you so much for, you know, uh, obviously giving me my money back. Joey thought that was over. The rest of the day went on. He continued to serve his customers. But no, it wouldn't end there. There was somebody in line that saw the whole thing go down. So they decided to email corporate headquarters and talk about Joey and the fantastic thing that he'd done. Well, sooner or later, the the Dairy Queen corporate headquarters decide, well, we're going to put this out on Facebook. And so they put it on Facebook just to say, Joe, man, way to go. Way to be a great employee at Dairy Queen. Of all people who learn about this, Warren Buffett. And some of you know that Warren Buffett runs a group called Berkshire Hathaway, and they buy up major companies around the world. Well, they happen to own Dairy Queen. So Warren Buffett calls Joey and says, Joey, we would like for you to come to our annual board meeting for all the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway because we want to talk about what you did at Dairy Queen. And so he goes to that moment and his story is told at the shareholders meeting as an example of the kind of fabric that they want, of the, of the, of the kind of really quality employee that they want to run Dairy Queen. My, my hunch is that Joey might have gotten from Warren Buffett a little bit more than $20. That would be my guess. <laughs> I don't know that. Here's what I want you to hear. Joey is an example of somebody who passed that faith test. He, he, he took action. He did something with it. He did what was right. And he got a, well, an earthly reward for that. I'm arguing there's something even better. It's a heavenly reward, a reward that comes from God. When we pass that test, God is saying, I'm going to give you something of value to me. And ultimately, it's something of value to you too because it's what is the true wealth that I want you to have. And so God is constantly in the, in, the, in the job and in the business of rewarding that faith once that test is passed. All right. Third, you have taken the test, you've passed the test, you've been rewarded by God, and now the third thing that God does all the time is he puts that faith to work. He puts that faith to work. Now, I want you to think about this for a second with me because if we have somebody that fails us, I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to really give that person much responsibility, not to give them much opportunity. I mean, if they failed me once, I'm kind of like, kind of done with you, right? That is far from God's MO. Some of God's greatest agents Some of his greatest ambassadors were individuals who had a pretty checkered past. And God says, I am not done with you. I'm going to test you again. I'm going to reward you. And now I'm going to use you. And in Zechariah's case, that's what happens. He uses Zechariah and he puts beautiful words into his mouth, prophetic words into his mouth in which he's going to describe the future. 
Zechariah, in this passage I read earlier this morning, speaks about two babies. There's two babies that are referenced in his song or in his poem. And this is the way it breaks down. Let me show you how it's break down. Next slide, if you would. 68 to 75, he describes this baby that's coming that's going to be the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And although he doesn't use the name Jesus, he, in the description here, is obviously describing the coming Messiah, and we're going to find out later in the chapters. Oh, yeah, he's talking about Jesus here. So 68 to 75 is about this one who is the horn of salvation for us from the servant David. Verses 76 to 79, he changes and says, And you, my child... So now he's talking about his own child, John the Baptist. And his own child will be called a prophet of the Most High. And so the whole thing is broken into two pieces. The the poem is broken into two pieces, two babies. Let me just tell you briefly about both those babies and what he says about them. So let's start with the first baby, the baby that is Jesus. Here it is. Zechariah's song is called the Benedictus because it starts off with the words blessed and in Latin, Benedictus is blessed. So that's what it's known as. And the first character that he's going to describe is Jesus. He's going to come to his people and redeem them. Redeem is a word in which uh, it, we, it gives the idea of buying something back of value. Something's been taken, I need to buy it back so that I now possess it. And he is the one who's coming, who's going to buy back what was lost in order for God to possess it once again. He's going to bring this salvation to his people for God. He's raised up as a horn of salvation. Horn in the Old Testament is always this idea of power. So he's bringing a powerful salvation upon us or to us. It's salvation from our enemies So uh, once upon a time, we had all these enemies, all these people that keep on taking over our country. He's going to come and deliver us from that. And so everybody's going to be a bit surprised, though, because they're thinking, wow, finally, the Romans get kicked out. Well, that's not the biggest enemies that he's overcoming. The biggest enemies he's overcoming are two, sin and death. Those are the greatest enemies of all humanity, whether you're under the oppression of a foreign government or not. Everybody's facing this two enemies, sin and death. How do we overcome those? And this Messiah, this one who's coming, is going to have the ability to take care of our greatest enemies of all time. He's going to remember his holy covenant, and he evokes the name Abraham here, saying, you remember all those covenants, all those promises God has made back in the Old Testament. This one who's coming fulfills all of those. He's bringing all of those to their fruition, all of those to their culmination, And so he's the one who's going to remember his holy covenants and fulfill them. And he's going to enable us to serve him without fear. So he's changing literally the landscape on the inside of us. Once we were a people who could not serve God without fear or not serve God at all. We wanted to serve ourselves. And he is coming in order to save us and reorient us so that we are individuals who have the ability to serve him And it says here, righteousness and purity for all the days of our lives. So again, this is a little snapshot of what Jesus, who Jesus is, who's he's coming. He's a baby right now, but 30 years later, Zechariah is looking down the path and saying, this is the Messiah that's coming on the way. And he's describing him in these terms.
All right, he's also going to describe his son. Give me the next slide. And his next slide is about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is going to be called a prophet of the Most High. He's going to prepare the way for him, meaning prepare his way, the way for the Messiah. And he's going to give his people the knowledge of salvation. And so John the Baptist is, for lack of a better word, the warm-up act. He's not the real band. The real band's coming out on the stage, and John the Baptist is the one that comes out and says, the real band is coming. The real deal is coming. We're just kind of warming you up and getting you ready. And that's exactly what John the Baptist does. John the Baptist goes down and says, I want to baptize people for repentance because I want everybody to get into this notion of now needing to repent, needing to know that there's things in your life that have gone wrong, that you've disobeyed God, you've hurt other people, and so I'm going to baptize people for repentance. But the one who's coming actually has the ability to extend the forgiveness for that, and so he keeps on pointing to Jesus, and he says, this is the guy you need. He even says again, John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no greater statement of John, if you want to understand John the Baptist, than this. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. And what a, what a reminder for the role of all of us. None of us are Savior. And so we all have this role of saying, I've got to decrease while the Savior increases, and I just want to push people towards him because that's who they really ultimately need. And so again, he's just constantly pointing and saying, that is the guy, that's the one that I want you to know. Imagine if Zechariah knew the hard life that his son would have. I, I think he had no idea. Zechariah at this point is saying, man, my son is going to be a prophet of the Most High. He's going to have this wonderful job. Little does he know he's going to be jailed. He's going to be, he's going to be hurt and jailed. And ultimately in jail over a party joke, his son is going to be beheaded. No idea the pain, the magnitude of pain that his son will suffer and the pain of a father's heart as he's talking about these glowing words and the high calling of his son, John the Baptist. I don't want you to miss the point here. The point is God uses faith. Remember our little formula here. God, first of all, is testing faith. Then he's rewarding faith and he uses faith. And the way that he used Zechariah was to put these beautiful words in his mouth about two babies that were coming on the horizon. Zechariah, before we read this passage this morning, had a flopped faith. And God gave him a second chance. And if you have failed in some way, you've had a flopped faith, God's not done with you. In fact, chances are very good. He's going to give you another chance very, very soon. It will likely include an opportunity to exercise faith even when it might not be popular among the people. It's a chance of gaining a new level of spiritual freedom. It's a chance of living with God's promises. It's a chance of giving something of importance back to God. In, John, in Zechariah's case, it was his son, John the Baptist. He's going to give him over to this life that he's going to lead with all of his twists and turns, but it's high calling. Well, today, on this eve before Christmas, I want to give you the chance to say yes to Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. On this Christmas, week before Christmas, it's a great opportunity to say that Jesus is the one who comes to all of us 
And he says this. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now what has to happen is that door has to be opened up. And Jesus says, if you'll open that door, guess what? I will come in with my father and we will dine with you. He gives this beautiful metaphor. I want to come in. I want to sit at the table. I want to be family and friends with you. But it takes you opening that door to let me in. At a more granular level, Jesus is saying this. I want to come in and take care of your biggest problem. I want to forgive your sin. And I'm also going to come in and I'm going to reorient you. Because once upon a time, you had no real desire to serve God. No real desire to pray or read the scriptures or do things that would honor God. That just wasn't in your vocabulary. And he's saying, I want to come in and new appetites are going to grow on the inside of you. Will you do this? Will you open that door and let me in? I'm going to give you the opportunity in just a moment to do that and to say yes to God in that way. For the rest of us, Zechariah is our example. An example of what it means when we have maybe had a moment of lapse, a moment of a flop faith, and God says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to come and I'm going to interact in your life and still continue to use you. Will we be again like Zechariah? Will we respond to the call and say yes? Zechariah is this, we don't often talk about Zechariah as being a Christmas figure, but he is in some very big ways. And he points the way towards his son, John the Baptist, and the bigger figure, Jesus, who is the Messiah and Savior of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, what a great story. And we love this story because it's so real, it's so human, and it has real people in it, like Zechariah. Lord, if there are individuals here today that have not yet opened the door, you're knocking, you're saying, let me in, come in, I want to come in, I want to give you this good gift of myself, but they haven't opened that door, is today that day, I would pray that it is. And it's as simple as this. It's saying, Lord, I do open that door now of my heart. And I want you to come in. And I want you to fulfill the promises that you've said and you want to give to me of forgiving me, reorienting me, and giving me a a mind and a heart and an attitude that's now fully upon you. Lord, we pray that individuals might make that decision today. And as a result of that, it would be a great Christmas. In fact, the best Christmas that they've ever had. And rejoicing is surrounding heaven, you say, when that occurs. For all the rest of us, Lord, we realize, boy, are we weak. In our own strength, we are so weak. People with feet of clay. But when we respond to you and we say yes to you, something happens. Something overtakes us and makes the moment powerful, joyful, momentous. Thank you for that. We want to be yours. Use our lives this Christmas for your glory. We pray this in God's name. And all God's people said, 